of sworn enemies, that bifurcated world of us and them. There are the black hats and the white hats. There are the cowboys and the Indians. There are the Hatfields and the McCoys. There are the fishermen and the water skiers. <laughs> Did you understand? The fishermen and the water skiers. Fishermen choose outboard engines and obsessive speed for it to be such a lazy sport, apparently it's important to get to the fish very fast. <laughs> Skiers prefer their power inboard for a strong, steady pull. 36 miles an hour is all you need, ever. But after noisily blistering the big water with that show of testosterone and excess, fishermen seem always to find the smoothest cove on the lake where they then drop in that little girly sewing machine motor so they can fish every single inch of the cove, you know, 40 feet trolling, 40 feet an hour. Now, I am assuming that fish actually have access to the entire lake. You know, fish the entire lake. So why it would be that fishermen insist on settling in on that smoothest cove you know, the only place that skiers can carve six turns at a time, I don't know why they do that. Fishermen and water skiers. I'm afraid that even after we've been enjoying generations of peace in the Middle East, the fishermen and the water skiers will still be at it. I've never been a fisherman, as you might be able to tell. I think I learned it the wrong way as a child sitting on the bank of that lake in the sweltering South Carolina sun watching for that little round red and white bob to go up and down and every time I moved my grandfather yelled, be still Russ. <laughs> Not easy for me to do. I was waiting, you see, I was waiting on Moby Dick to come by and drag my soggy little earthworm to the bottom, and the best I ever pulled out of there was an overgrown guppy. It was just not in my constitution then or now to sit that still for that long for such little results. And the problem, as I see it, is that the game is just wrong from the very beginning. You see, they call it fishing, not catching. <laughs> you understand? If they called it face planting at 36 miles an hour, I probably wouldn't have taken up water skiing either. <laughs> now, there is some of that involved, but that's not the main course. And I guess with fishing, there's a little bit of catching involved, but from my experience, it's mostly just fishing. And that is the task to which Jesus called his disciples, fishing. Maybe that's part of the church's problem. Maybe we have been too interested in catching and all that that implies. 
Catching says more about the skill of the fisherman than about the beauty of the fish. Look what I have caught. You see? Catching makes it easy to get caught up in those fish tales of how big and how many. Do I need to connect the dots here for you about the church's obsession with numbers? How big and how many? And apparently lots of people actually enjoy fishing just for the scenery and the experience, even more than they enjoy the catch. But if the emphasis is just on how many you bring home, the scenery and the experience don't matter very much. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus did not call Peter and Andrew, James and John to be catchers of people, just fishermen. Which is to say, Jesus wanted them to be as interested in people as they were interested in scales and fins. While I am not a fisherman, I do admire real fisher people, our enmity on the lake aside, especially those people who fly fish. Have you seen some of those flies they tie? Just amazing. Little bitty teenitesy elements that they tie together with invisible plastic line to make it look like the dozens of flying critters which are the natural prey of scales and fins. To know what to tie, And for what trip? You have to know that environment. Is it the lake or is it a mountain stream? And you have to know what kind of insects are are natural to that environment. You have to know your subject. Is it bass or trout? And you have to study them, their habits under the water, where they school and when they eat. And you have to have the patience of Job. If they're not showing interest in the mayfly, maybe they're hungry for a caddisfly. People who love to fish as a hobby love fish. And the work to which Jesus calls his disciples is not the objectifying work of catching. So we can pride ourselves in all the crowds we have enticed and all the souls we've saved, and all the baptisms we've numbered. It is the work of loving people, especially the people that Jesus loved. When the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in the year 333 of the Common Era, the world was changed. Christianity, which had been a small persecuted sect, came out of the shadows of contempt and became the religion of the empire. Without the influence and protection of the state, Christianity would certainly not have flourished as it did. So there are many people who see God's hand directly at work. God using Constantine's power to spread the gospel to all the world. And there is no doubt that the growth of Christianity is directly related to that historic event But it may be that as our faith grew broad at the power of Constantine's sword, it also grew shallow. 
that in the process of adding numbers and power and coming out of the shadows of oppression and into the limelight of stardom, the church traded the discipleship of fishing for an evangelism of catching. When Jesus called those first few dirty, poor fishermen to become his disciples, he set the stage. Jesus still wants us to become fishers of people. But who were Jesus' people? When my mother was in college, her first roommate was also a committed Christian. And every night, my mother said, they spent a few minutes together sharing a devotion and having a prayer together. I've heard my mother say that every night when they prayed, Nora would say, Lord, help me to love those who are unlovable. Exactly. It's easy to love the lovable, the popular, the rich, the famous, the powerful, but these were not Jesus's people. If we want to be disciples, we've got to share an interest in Jesus' people, the poor, the outcast, the immigrant, the lame, the lost, the least, the last, the helpless. There can be little doubt that these were Jesus' people. He was part of a prophetic tradition that saw the role of religion and our individual places in it as lifting up the downtrodden and changing the systems that keep them downtrodden. This was Jesus' work, but he did not do it alone. He gathered around him all who could hear his strange truth. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. He gathered around him those who could hear the good that God loves all people, but especially those who have wandered, that one lost sheep, the prodigal son. He gathered around him those who understood that God's rule is by grace, not by law. It's by forgiveness, not by judgment. It's by unconditional love, not by merit. He said, for all who have ears to hear, come. And they formed a community. And they began doing his work. They began reaching out as he had done, speaking as he had done, healing as he had done, touching as he had done. In an article called Making Christians in a Secular World, Will Williman, the former dean of the Duke University Chapel, says Constantine has finally died. He actually traces it back to his youth. The Fox Theater opened its doors in Greenville, South Carolina on a Sunday afternoon in 1963. Williman says, what more proof do you need than that? that Constantine is gone. If the blue laws of the Bible Belt couldn't keep Williman and his high school friends from choosing John Wayne over church, what is left? But Williman argues persuasively that all that is left 
is all that those first disciples had to begin with, and that is each other. They had community. The state will no longer prevent the intrusion of secular values into our Christian world. The culture will no longer prioritize our day of Sunday worship. The social ethos and our schools will no longer teach our values if they ever did. Williman says the day is coming, has already come, when the church must again take seriously the task of making Christians, of intentionally forming a peculiar people. Most Christian conversions are not dramatic. Williman says one is often impressed by how unspectacular and mundane is the process of formation. An admired Sunday school teacher, the habit of being brought to church by parents, a pastor who was particularly attentive during a difficult time, the church, the church must be attentive to the myriad of seemingly little things that it does to make people feel part of community the daily unspectacular acts of caring and living together, the hospital visit, the covered dish supper, the birthday card, the hour spent preparing food at the church's soup kitchen. That's how we make Christians. This week, I visited with Dot Austin. Some of you remember Dot Austin, who never missed a single Sunday morning in this room until age and Alzheimer's took its toll. When I sat down with Dot, she did not know me. She didn't recognize my face. She asked who I was. And I said, Dot, I'm your pastor. And you should have seen the smile that came across her face. This smile that never left, and she reached out and she grabbed my hands and she would not let them go for the rest of the time that I sat there. And everyone who passed, she said, this is my minister, and I'm going back to church soon. Dot cannot quote the Bible chapter and verse anymore. She has no need to parse theological doctrines She did not make a pledge to the 2014 church budget. She will never again increase our Sunday school attendance, but the warmth and the strength of her hands taught her pastor that the power of community never, ever leaves the human heart. The world out there needs a peculiar people called to follow the vision of Jesus. And Dot Austin, and you and I need community. May it be so.